Ladies and gents, welcome back to the Pop Culture Podcast. Tyson Popplestone here. Great to have you here. Today in the show, we are joined by Dr. Akil Palanasamy. He's a Harvard-trained physician who practices integrative medicine, blending conventional medical expertise with holistic approaches, including functional medicine and Ayurveda. He graduated from Harvard University with a Bachelor of Arts in Biomedical Sciences. He then earned an MD from the University of California in San Francisco and completed family medicine residency training at Stanford University. Then graduated from a fellowship in integrative medicine with Dr. Andrew Walt, University of Arizona, and received certification in mind-body medicine from the Georgetown University Center. He's a widely known speaker and educator, and I heard of him recently through his new book, The Tiger Protocol, which is an integrative five-step program to treat and heal your autoimmunity. Man, with a guy like this, there's so many directions you can take the conversation, but a little taste test of a number of the things that we spoke about include uh, the benefits of exercise, the impact of toxins, the best diet for you, or is there a best diet for you? The impact of things like sauna, we talk about rest and the lack of appreciation for what rest can offer in our life. We talk about the gut microbiome and its role in our health and a whole heap more. This guy's an absolute gun. I highly recommend his book. I've got it linked for you in the description to this episode below. But for now, let me introduce to you and to the show for the very first time, Dr. Akil Palanasami. So what are you going to tell us, tough guys? My usual, zero, nothing. Man, really, uh, really excited to have the opportunity to sit down with you. Obviously, a, a big fan of your work and the things that you're doing and teaching, and so many of the conversations that you've had. And I was thinking about a nice place for us to start because the world of health is a scene that's very interesting to me. I've been fascinated in the subject since I can remember. But one of the things which I'm, I'm constantly amazed by is uh, 2024. Now we live in a society which I, I feel, in many respects, is really um, improving their knowledge around health and well-being. Yes. But one of the things that I'm constantly surprised by is despite the interest and the supplements and the teaching and the availability mm -hmm. of resources, mm -hmm. there seems to be a real disconnect still between the knowledge that we have and the decrease in uh, things like autoimmune disease and Parkinson's mm -hmm. disease. Mm -hmm. And so I guess as a way to kickstart the conversation, <laughs> I, I'd be interested to hear you speak to that. Uh, what, what do you think is actually going on uh, mm -hmm. to cause you know, such availability of information and still such increases in what should be fairly treatable diseases, ailments, illnesses? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, yeah, that's a great question, Tyson. So I think that uh, what we're seeing is really a, a perfect storm of factors globally that are leading to the, this epidemic of chronic disease and autoimmune disease. Uh, and you're totally right. You know, we have a lot of the information uh, in terms of research, you know, uh, diet, lifestyle, the gut microbiome, the effects of stress. Uh, so we have the knowledge, but it's not translating into day-to-day -day life for most people in the in the world. And um, I believe, you know, one of the unrecognized factors is the rise of environmental toxins. Um, so these have been rapidly increasing in the in the past years, and uh, I feel not enough attention is paid to the effects on chronic illness, metabolism, immune health, gut microbiome, you know, from toxins, as well as these other factors as well, like uh, uh, deterioration of our food supply, uh, changes in our gut bacteria, 
Um, of course, the increased stress of modern living. So I think all of those factors in combination, probably. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting conversation and one that I think is the attraction of a person in a situation like what you're in. Because obviously, uh, rightly so, in so many respects, you, you go to a GP and they'll have certain treatments for certain illnesses. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, they'll work. Mm-hmm. But in many cases, in my own experience, in uh, those of my family and friends, They'll go there for what seems to be a, a relatively simple or frustrating little problem. They'll get diagnosed, they'll get prescribed, mm-hmm. um, they'll go through the prescription and notice that, hey, a lot of what I've just been told or recommended has made absolutely no impact. So yep. mm-hmm. I, I, yes. I'm interested in that combination of, I, I guess, you know, a, a more holistic view, things that actually looks at the toxins, looks at the stresses, looks at the environmental factors, rather than just a one size fits all kind of tablet so i know this is a field of yours that you're you're mm-hmm. more specialized in you've got a broader approach i think than what so many of the gps that many of us go to for these problems seem to uh seems to have but in terms of the toxins now i know mm-hmm. you go this uh, through this in a lot more detail in in your book the toxins is one which i think is completely ignored yep. misunderstood not known about when, when you're talking about toxins what are you talking about Yeah, so there's um, different categories of toxins. Um, There are things like heavy metals, um, mercury, lead, um, and so forth. There are pesticides, which uh, can be found in in the food, um, can be avoided if you choose more organic. Um, And then there's um, environmental pollutants, things that show up in the water, in in small quantities, uh, in foods, Things like endocrine disrupting chemicals that sh- that can show up in our personal care products, uh, lotions and creams that we apply to the body every day, and you know they get absorbed through the skin. Um, and uh, uh, even in um, household, um, you know, air, indoor air, in some studies has been shown to be more contaminated than outdoor air because of uh, things in the home that are off-gassing and you know mold spores or other uh, cleaning chemicals and, and so forth and. Uh, um, so I think all of these um, together, you know, each like an individual toxin is likely not going to be acutely harmful. But when you're combining dozens or hundreds of these, you know, a couple of studies have found the average person has more than 100 measurable toxins in their blood. Um, then you start getting those synergistic negative effects, which are uh, very hard to study, but we can see the effects of it. Yeah, I'm in the process of having a few amalgam fillings oh. removed from mm-hmm. from like the early 2000s or so. I'm not sure um, if you've got much to speak to about that, but I'd started to do a little bit of research because obviously, I mean, hmm. my, my health story goes back a long way, like mm-hmm. all of ours, but I always thought I was a relatively healthy kid. Hmm. And I look back now at my lifestyle as a 14-year-old kid, and mm-hmm. it was that 99% fat-free diet. Everything uh, that we ate, it was healthy if it was fat-free, yes. supposedly. Yeah. And so I opened my cupboard and it was fruit bars and it was muesli bars and it was cereals and it was yogurts Mm -hmm. and it was delicious and i was like look how healthy i am and i could never understand why it was that i'd go to a dentist and he's like hey Mm. you need six new fillings yeah and so i'm in the process now of i'd been learning a little bit about amalgam fillings and Mm -hmm. i think it's mercury is the the toxin that it contains or the metal that it contains and i'd heard a a lot about some of the negative side effects that this can have on um, you know like brain health and a whole range of other Mm. factors yes can you speak to that at all? Like, is that something that I should be concerned about and, and should go and get sorted? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think, um, you know, the 
the the dental profession has been slowly shifting as well, just like all of our other you know un, uh, understanding in terms of uh, uh, using less of mercury amalgams and uh, switching more to composite or inert materials. Um, and um, I think it, it depends on the person. You know, if it's uh, maybe just one or two that are um, not posing an issue, maybe it's fine. But if there are multiple fillings, and then certain people are more sensitive to the release of mercury from those fillings over time, then um, it can be an issue. So yeah, I definitely I'm glad you're working with a you know, more holistic dentist, and they have approaches to replace and repair those, um, those fillings, because um, mercury, as it builds up in the body can have neurological effects, you know, it's a neurotoxin, it impacts the brain, can cause brain fog, uh, fatigue, you know, other neurological symptoms. Um, even in uh, one published case in the literature, there was a, a patient with multiple sclerosis who was found to have high levels of heavy metals, mercury, and then she went through a chelation therapy and it actually um, put her into remission, whereas like medications and other things had not been able to. So um, the effects of heavy metals, yeah, can really uh, accumulate over time. So I'm glad you're looking into that. Yeah, awesome. So interesting. That was going to be my follow-up question is, uh, you know, once you've actually dealt with the mm -hmm. feelings, is there a way that your body can actually get rid of, get like excrete this kind of stuff? And I often wonder yes. as well, I, I still take part in a, a marathon runner or distance runner, really interested in going out, running long distances and uh, swimming and just doing these events where naturally you're going to be sweating quite regularly. Like, is that one of the ways that your body's actually getting rid of these toxins? Mm -hmm. Like, so what are some effective ways yep. to actually um, obviously, after you've addressed some of the things that are in your home, yes. if you're on a process of going, all right, well, clearly mm -hmm. I've been exposed to it. I'd love to eliminate the exposure, yep. but also try and give my body an opportunity to recover, rejuvenate. Mm -hmm. and what are some practical steps from, from that standpoint that you can take to get your body back to a, a healthier foundation to work from? Yes. Um, so I think we shouldn't forget about the basics, like drinking enough water. You know, a lot of my patients are, are dehydrated. So uh, the kidney plays a key role in filtering toxins. So making sure you're drinking plenty of water every day, the hydration is important. Um, and then elimination and uh, healthy bowel movements are, are key because your liver packages toxins into the bile, which ends up, you know, in the stool. And it's meant to be excreted every day. That That's part of your daily detox. And so if you're not, uh, struggling with that, then that's an area that, you know, definitely is good to work on. Um, and then there's also the lymphatic system, which is important for moving lymph fluid throughout the body, which can carry toxins and infections out of the body. Um, any kind of movement will help with the lymphatics, you know, yoga, walking, any type of physical activity. Um, and then the final thing, which I'm a big fan of, is sweating, because uh, through sweat, they've actually found many of these toxins are preferentially excreted. So things like all the heavy metals, uh, pesticides, and endocrine disrupting chemicals. Um, there was an interesting study from Canada where they compared uh, those who were sweating from exercise to those who were sweating uh, in a sauna, and they actually found differences. So the sweating in a sauna is actually was actually better than um, from exercise for the clearance of toxins, and they theorized that that's because a lot of these toxins are stored in our subcutaneous fat just below the skin. And when the body's heated externally from a you know, sauna, steam room, anything like that, then it's easier for those toxins to be excreted through the sweat. Um, of course, I'm a huge fan of exercise. You know, I, I think that's a game changer, but it's not uh, a duplicate to do both, you know, be very physically active. And then a couple times a week, go to a sauna or steam room and, and do that sweating as well, because the benefits are different.
Yeah. So a couple of times a week would yep. be a good place to start yes. uh, with access to a sauna. And then for someone who has no idea, I've, I've never really used sauna that much. I've become interested like I have become in uh, interested in ice baths and things. They just seem to be quite hot topics in many fields at the moment. I can see why I actually had a friend around the corner from me just have a, a sauna installed in his backyard oh, <laughs> fairly nice. recently. And uh, I was asking him some questions at the gym the other day. But in terms of how long you should actually kickstart your program in a sauna like how long are you looking at there um yeah so i always tell people you know start slowly 10 15 minutes make sure you drink plenty of water you might benefit from taking electrolytes you know uh, afterwards and uh, um and then you can start up working up to 20 20 30 minutes twice a week so you're getting about an hour a week um, in the, the studies done from Finland, where sauna use is, is very um, popular, you know, two to three times a week seems to be a, a great way to get a lot of heart benefits, uh, reducing risk of heart disease, promoting longevity. And those who do more, like if you go up to four to five times a week, they had even a bigger reduction, like 40% reduction in risk of heart disease. So um, there's really, I, I don't think there's much of a limit in terms of how high, the more you do, probably the more helpful it's going to be. But starting working up to twice a week, you know, 20 to 30 minutes is, is a good minimum. Yeah, sure. Is that something that's a part of your health and fitness routine? <clears throat> yes. Uh, in fact, after doing the research for my book, I invested in a, a home sauna, a portable home. Uh, so it's not a really like a fancy one. It's a portable one, which is uh, a couple hundred dollars. It's a simple tent with a foldable chair. You sit inside the tent and you zip yourself up and then it just the inside of the tent is heated. Your head sticks out above it. And uh, but it does the job, you know, it heats up the body, sweat. And uh, yeah, I've been using that regularly. I really love the way it makes me feel. Yeah, awesome. It's funny. I um a, a separate friend to the one that I just spoke about. So the one I just mentioned, he's got the the legit one. Mm -hmm. It was carried in by a crane yeah. over wow. his backyard. Okay. But another friend of mine, we we spent some time with a few weeks ago. He has the exact one that you're speaking about, 300 bucks from Amazon. He goes, "Mate, honestly, like you get 20 minutes into a sauna routine in this tent and you get the workout you want or you get the sweat that you want, which is Good to hear because mm -hmm. I'd seen a couple of them on Amazon and just assumed mm -hmm. based on the, the way they look, they look so different to the traditional ones that they probably weren't going to be as effective. But in terms of what you're getting out of it, what well, it's exactly what you need. Yes, exactly. I think, um, you know, yeah, any type of heat to the body. So for people who don't have a sauna, uh, even in uh, doing a, a hot bath, like sitting in a bathtub, uh, really with a, as hot uh, water as you can tolerate, I think, uh, you know, that's uh, probably not the same as on it, but you're getting something, you're getting some benefit. Um, and uh, um, a hot tub is, you know, better than nothing, but it, it doesn't really heat your body enough uh, compared to a sauna. Yeah, that's so interesting. I never even really thought about the option of a, a hot tub being yeah. something. So I had a, a little bit of a bug last week. I don't know if you call mm -hmm. it this in the States, but we call it the man flu here in okay. in australia where i just had yeah. a little bit of a fever for whatever reason first time in a long time hmm. some uh, tummy troubles and i was laying in bed sweating and mm. yeah i was just i was craving like a, a hot bath and mm. i was talking to this friend at the gym the other day and he was saying he had the same thing and it's mm. interesting that like some form of heat whether it's just the yep. air or actually exposing yourself or, or put, immersing yourself i should say mm -hmm. in the water is real beneficial to at least temporarily like alleviating that fever I got out and I was like, okay, that was exactly what I needed. But your, your scene's <clears throat> yeah. interesting, isn't it? Because you, you combine, it seems like 
I, I, for lack of a better expression, maybe a little bit of the East in the terms of Ayurveda yes. mm-hmm. and a little bit of the West in, in terms of just that, um, what do you call it, medicine, like the approach yes. to medicine. Yeah, But it is yeah. a really mm-hmm. unique combination, I think. Those fields in many scenes seem to be mutually exclusive. You go to one if you want the medicine, you go to one if you're a bit of a hippie. At least mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right. how it is in Australia. And so when you have mm-hmm. a, a guy in your situation who's combining the two fields, obviously your, your understanding of each is complemented. And, and mm-hmm. I, I find it more helpful speaking to a person like that because the idea of taking a bit more of a helicopter approach to all areas of your life in terms of what might be able to benefit your health, it seems like a smarter place to start taking into mm-hmm. consideration all the factors. But I was just curious to find out how you actually found your way there. Which scene did you start in? Which uh, oh, yes. uh, What's been the response to the, the worlds that you delve in? Yeah. Um, so we in the U.S. call it integrative medicine, you know, where um, you're combining conventional medicine as well as uh, holistic or alternative therapies. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm not opposed to Western medicine because I, you, you know, prescribe drugs when indicated medications can be life saving. You know, if, if I ever got in a car accident, I wouldn't want to go to an Ayurvedic doctor, you know, take me straight to the ER. And uh, um, so I think, um, yeah, there's a place for both. I think where um, holistic therapies excel is really chronic disease, you know, where after that initial uh, flare up is resolved, what can you do on a proactive basis to prevent the illness from getting worse? You know, and that's where um, often uh, conventional medicine doesn't have a lot of guidance. You know, cancer patients are told to eat whatever they want, just, uh, you know, for example. Uh, But for me, yeah, I started out in biochemistry. That's what I studied in college and uh, did research in uh, clinical medicine. And then Uh, began, you know, conventional medical training. And it was only through my own illness during medical school that I was kind of forced to explore other options and learn about Ayurveda and that really for the first time. But when I saw the impact on my own body, that's when I realized I really have to learn this for my future patients. So um, that's how I came to it. Yeah. So what were you going through yourself in college? Uh, yeah, so it was basically a kind of a mystery illness that um, with the chronic pain and um, I had like unexplained weight loss, uh, severe fatigue and uh, uh, back pain where I could no longer like sit in a chair and attend classes uh, anymore and I couldn't use a computer. So I had to actually stop my training, uh, take a whole year off to try to recover because I was doing all the conventional treatments, you know, anti-inflammatories, physical therapy and um, you know, usual care. Um, and then I consulted an Ayurvedic doctor who um, diagnosed uh, me with uh, what's called a vata imbalance, uh, which is V-A-T-A. That's one of the uh, vata is one of the main forces in Ayurveda. And it's a completely different system where they believe that um, imbalances of these forces cause, uh, cause illness. And that was the first thing that actually fit all my symptoms. Nothing in Western medicine really fit. Um, but... Uh, it was kind of a textbook case of all the things seen in, in Vata imbalance. And when I started addressing those, you know, with the proper diet, lifestyle, uh, stress reduction, vitamins, herbs, uh, natural things, then um, that's when my health really uh, recovered. Sure. And from an Ayurvedic uh, perspective, what, what is a proper diet? Oh, yeah. So the great thing about Ayurveda is it's it's highly individualized. Um, and so uh, they believe that each person has a unique combination of the, you know, these uh, what are called doshas or forces in the body. And uh, 
Um, there are three main ones, um, and uh, like vata, pitta, and kapha. And then the diet recommendations kind of vary a lot depending on which is primary, which is secondary. Um, you know, I, I write a, a lot about that in, in my books, uh, but uh, um, the great thing is it's completely individualized. So you might have the opposite recommendation as your you know neighbor if you have completely different body types. So for example, like vata uh, body type is recommended to kind of reduce raw foods and someone with a different, like for example, pitta constitution is encouraged to have a lot of raw foods. So it really varies a lot, which is the strength of Ayurveda. Yeah, that is a real strength. That's one of the, the things that seems to come up in quite a lot of the conversations I have with people from the world of health mm-hmm. on this podcast is, is just the overuse of generic recommendations yes. for um, physical ailments. And w- one that I've, I've heard you speak about, but I'd love to pick your brain a little more about is just the current trend of the carnivore diet and mm-hmm. some of the crazy reports that we've seen on people's autoimmune disease. Yes. Um, Jordan Peterson's a guy who comes to mind who's mm-hmm. perhaps one of the most well-known people to use it, not necessarily claim that it's beneficial to everyone, credit to him, mm-hmm. but I have heard him speak about the own, uh, uh, like the benefits to his own body and some of the depression and brain frog, uh, fog that he's had as a result of being on this carnivore diet. What are your thoughts on that as a, um, it seems like a trend at this point. Well, for sure. Yeah, I have uh, many patients who are on the carnivore diet. And uh, I think of it as uh, under the category of elimination diets, you know, because we, we use those a lot in integrative medicine, whether you're um, eliminating gluten or, you know, eliminating sugar, or in this case, eliminating all plant products. Um, Elimination diets have the advantage of uh, removing a lot of sensitivities, food sensitivities, food allergies, you know, this get taken out of the diet. So you're automatically bringing down inflammation. You're um, ideally incorporating healing foods, uh, which can be, you know, the animal-based foods. They can be healing, like if you're having bone broth, if you're having uh, plenty of nutrient-dense foods, if you're having organ meats, you know, all these uh, really nutrient-rich foods. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, by bringing down all the inflammation through the elimination diet, you can really change symptoms and you can really, for some people, even with autoimmune disease, you can put things into remission and, uh, um, yeah. And then with any elimination diet, my goal, goal is always to try to broaden it out in the long run, because you might uh, really benefit from it over, you know, a few weeks, few months, um, but then in the long term, I, I think you should always try to increase diversity in your diet uh, because that's very important for your microbiome, you know, the gut bacteria. And that's a key metric for longevity because the people who live the longest, you know, have the most diverse microbiome and that's caused by the most diverse diets. So in the long run, I think branching out on the diet is, um, is helpful, but I definitely see a, a role for any type of elimination diet. And for some people, the carnivore diet for some time. Yeah, sure. You, you started to delve into the the acronym of Tiger a little bit oh, with yeah. the mention of toxins before, and obviously, like in terms of an actual, um, you know, bit more of a broad approach to what might be triggering someone's autoimmune disease. This is a really good place to start. But um, uh, obviously, we're not going to go into you know, the ins and outs of your book. You do a great job of you know explaining each chapter. But I thought perhaps as providing a little bit of a framework to people as to what it is that you are speaking about, some of the things that we can do to get uh, get started, or at least 
whet the appetite to uh, you know learn a little more about this is is perhaps walk through mm-hmm. a couple more of the letters in the acronym of, of tiger because yep. obviously each area plays a role in actually seeing someone's autoimmune health come back to hopefully um, you know a hundred percent. Yes, um, absolutely. And, you know, what I've seen is that these five root causes drive inflammation, uh, not just in autoimmune disease, but in other chronic diseases as well, Um, heart disease, obesity, diabetes, um, you know, a lot of our modern epidemics. So I think it's very important for everyone to look at these five factors. So the T is toxins, which we talked about. Um, I is infections. So that could be um, any microbacterial, viral, fungal, parasite. Um, <clears throat> my approach is uh, more on making the body inhospitable to infections. So I think there are ways you can strengthen your immune system and then make your body environment, the inner terrain of the body, inhospitable to these uh, bad bugs. And one way to do that is actually making your uh, intestinal pH uh, somewhat acidic because that has been proven to limit the overgrowth of bad bacteria, um, fungal uh, species like candida. Um, and um, so strategies to help in, you know, acidify the intestine include intake of fermented foods. You know, they have a lot of these beneficial acids. Um, getting more plant fibers uh, in the diet, getting prebiotic foods. So fermented foods are great, but I think prebiotic foods are less well-known, but maybe even more powerful. And uh, uh, that could include things like, you know, artichokes and uh, uh, asparagus, um, leeks. You know, there's a long list, but um, I think the, um, yeah, making the body inhospitable is my approach to the eye, the infection piece. Um, And then the G is the gut. So the microbiome, uh, you know, affects really every other system in the body, the immune system, the brain, the heart, um, pretty much inflammation throughout the body. So uh, keeping the microbiome really optimal is uh, um, health is is key to maintaining health. And, uh, um, and then the E refers to eating. Um, And then in my approach, I break it down into the phase one and the phase two diet. So we talked a little bit about elimination diets, and that's what the phase one diet is. It's much more restricted. You're cutting out potentially a lot of uh, foods, and then you're you're doing the reintroductions to then move towards the phase two diet. So I walk people through, you know, systematically over eight weeks. How do you reintroduce foods? How do you keep a food journal? What symptoms do you track? Because people need a lot of guidance about that. You know, it's it's not easy. Um, and then in the in the long run, the phase two diet is more of a diverse um, plant-forward diet with a lot of these prebiotic foods um, as well as fermented foods. So I think that's um, that's really helpful. And then the R refers to rest. So getting adequate sleep, uh, managing stress, really working on that mind-body connection. Um, I think that's one of the uh, modern epidemics, you know, our, our just uh, busy lives and the level of stress we all deal with, often unconsciously. You know, people, most, many of my patients, they don't realize they're they're under a lot of stress, but then as I'm talking to them, you know, they, they kind of understand how uh, all these factors are contributing. So yeah, I'm a big believer in mind-body practices, whether it be meditation, yoga, or, you know, mindfulness, or um, or other things as well, you know, therapy, um, guided imagery. There's a lot of different options out there. Sure. To, to rewind a little bit and go back to the um, the pH levels of the yes. blood acidity, this is something I've heard about uh, briefly, a little mm-hmm. bit. I mean, I've got apple cider vinegar yeah. sitting in the cupboard, which is something that I'll take on a 
uh, not daily basis, but fairly regularly. And I mm -hmm. started that habit years ago when I heard someone speak about this. And I thought, okay, that could just be a, a really good place to start. But the idea of fermented food in general yep. through the rise of kombucha and mm -hmm. uh, oh, I'm completely blanking on the name. What's the German, <laughs> the, uh, oh. the the cabbage? Oh, yeah, sauerkraut. Sauerkraut, sauerkraut yeah. sorry. Yeah, yes, I completely yes. blanked on it. But uh, sauerkraut's obviously another one. So when we're talking about like that blood acidity, so disease yep. uh, flourishes in a high acidic uh, blood is, is that right no it's only the intestine uh, so it's not the blood ph um, because blood ph okay. is very tightly regulated it doesn't really fluctuate but intestinal ph varies quite a lot uh, based on the diet um, and um, yeah because every organ has a different optimal ph so uh, we're talking only about the large intestine but um, research shows yeah if you can get the ph down below 6.5 you know 6.0 that's really the optimal range, um, and uh, um, and then the main driver of that uh, is what what are called short chain fatty acids. So these are supposed to be produced by your gut bacteria uh, in a healthy gut. You know the microbiome is abundant. There are plenty of these um, short chain fatty acids being produced, and that's what drives the um, the pH down. And so the bacteria need all those um, prebiotic foods, the plant fibers, to then produce those. Um, fatty acids and that's the main driver yeah so when you're talking about ayurvedic medicine when you're talking about uh, more of a natural approach to medicine i mean it must mm -hmm. be mind-blowing to you and you i know the acronym it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek but the standard american diet the yes. sad, sad diet right it's very similar i would, I would uh, bet good money mm -hmm. that from what i've seen in australia and what i've seen in america the diets are very similar yes. perhaps some of the serving sizes are a little bigger in the states, but yeah. I mean, we're not doing much better over here, from from what I can tell. Mm. So, what are some of the really common foods that people are eating, which are just destroying any chance of actually be able we, uh, being able to lay a baseline of uh, an intestinal pH level, which is actually beneficial to being able to operate at full health? Is it the things you'd expect, like your your, your high sugars and your high saturated fats and um, or, or are there some other little sneaky substances sneaking through the system which are really destroying our ability to be able to maintain high, high levels of health? Um, yeah, <clears throat> it's, I think, a very interesting area of research because um, more and more of these food additives are being linked to disturbances in the microbiome. So uh, preservatives, emulsifiers, uh, sweeteners, especially artificial sweeteners. Um, so a lot of these things are, are really present in processed foods. So it's back to that... Uh, um, kind of effect of, you know, highly processed packaged foods contain a lot of these negative ingredients. Plus, they often contain the added sugar um, and, you know, things that are inflammatory. So I think that um, there's the uh, presence of some of these harmful foods. And then there's the absence of the things which can help, which are the prebiotic foods, the fermented foods, you know, people in the US, they don't often have a taste for those, you know, sour or pickled uh, kind of foods. But uh, um, yeah, those are also absent, but those are the foods which can help the pH. Sure. So what are we talking about in terms of differences? Because I've heard a lot about probiotics, yes. but prebiotics, what's taking place there that's different to probiotics? Yeah, so probiotics refer to the live bacteria, which can be found either in foods like fermented foods or probiotic supplements like capsules. And prebiotics are food are, are basically food for the bacteria. So they're basically fibers that feed those good bacteria. And um, prebiotic foods are contain different categories of those uh, prebiotics. So for example, 
There are polyphenols, which feed your um, you know, good bacteria. Those include things like green tea, um, grapes, or you know, red wine, any kind of berries. Um, there's a lot of options there. Uh, and then there are the inulin-rich prebiotic foods like um, artichoke, garlic, onion, asparagus, leeks, and so forth. Um, there's resistant starch, which is another prebiotic that uh, broken down into three types, um, one, two, and three. They're different grains, whole grains, uh, certain legumes, beans um, that contain each of those, those three and so forth. So there's like many different categories of prebiotics and uh, um, yeah, and what I like to do, so, you know, in my book is to give people like dozens of choices in each category and explain that they don't need to eat all of them. You know, it's, it's not that you need to eat all of these 200 foods, but select some that you are not eating regularly and adding that in because you want to really try to vary your diet. You know, many of us get in the same habit eating the same 12 foods every week or, or whatever, which is convenient, but it's not ideal when it comes to the gut. Sure. And in terms of trying to follow seasons and things yes. like, obviously, uh, with a worldwide market, we've got foods coming into Australia, which are, you know, clearly from last winter or last summer or sometime mm -hmm. in between. Yep. And they seem to be available no matter what kind of the year it is. Do you have any mm -hmm. personal preference when it comes to eating food in season? Are there, is there much to show uh, in terms of like the health benefits of eating in a way like that? I think so. Yeah. Um, that's one thing Ayurveda highly recommends is uh, eating locally, eating seasonally. Um, so I, I suggest, you know, trying to shop at your local farmer's market, uh, go directly to the farmers and finding out what's growing and, and eating um, seasonally that way is one of the easiest ways. You don't need to think about it. You just shop at a farmer's market. Whatever is in season will be available. So. That's good. So you're doing that for yourself. You're going yes. out to local farmers markets, and yep. uh, have you got a preference on um, organic food as well? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I try to whenever possible. Um, I think uh, um, you know if there if it, a food has a um, thick skin that we're going to throw away, then typically we don't get um, organic, like uh, avocado or banana, for example. But um, whenever a possible, it's definitely not like hundred percent. But I try to lean in that direction. For sure. Yeah, we're the same. I, I had a really interesting conversation on here with Dr. Ray Dorsey a few weeks ago. I'm not sure if you're familiar with hmm. Dr. Ray Dorsey. Uh, I know no. too much about him, but he's a, a researcher in the field of Parkinson's disease. Oh, and he was speaking about a, a number of um, the common factors hmm. which seem to correlate with an increased incidence of Parkinson's. And he was speaking about, um, well, first of all, there was air pollution. Hmm. But second of all, there was just exposure to paraquat, oh, which wow. is... Yep. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you yes. know what that is. It was an education to me, but for anyone listening who doesn't, it's essentially uh, glyphosate, the, the lead ingredient in Roundup's more powerful older brother <laughs> from what I understand. And he was saying that it's, uh, you know, in so many of our field sprayed crops. But he also explained, as you did, that there's really helpful ways around it. And that is like if it's got a thick skin that you're going to throw away, don't stress too much. The final one for anyone wondering was uh, like, I can't remember what the name of it was, but it was a chemical found in so many dry cleaning areas or dry cleaning studios. A lot of people uh, who'd been working in there for a long period of time seemed to have an increased incidence in that. But mm -hmm. yeah, the, the conversation around organic food, like so many of the other things that we've mentioned, it seems to be coming to a bit more of a forefront in recent years. Mm -hmm. Um it's interesting to see, I mean, this is a whole other direction that you could take the conversation, but it, it is mind-blowing that 60 years ago, the, the cigarette companies were mm. advertising the health benefits of smoking 
Mm-hmm. And Ray, Dr. Ray Dorsey was saying that at the moment, some of these big producers of these farm field sprays mm. are promoting the, the uh, you know, not the health benefits, but the lack of health impact yep. of some of the sprays that are on the food. But you, you dig a little bit deeper. And I mean, the research seems to show that there's some pretty negative consequences as well. So uh, in, mm. in terms of um, like, I, I don't know if you have a percentage or how passionate you are about it, but mm-hmm. just you would say, if you can eat organic, if you can't, maybe try and wash it. Yes, um, <clears throat> exactly. And I, you know, I think that's a very interesting uh, point that you've raised, which is important because, uh, um, you know, as consumers, where we live in a world where we're so uh, exposed to marketing and we're really easily swayed by messages that are that are put that put out there, and many groups have taken advantage of that. And uh, so, starting with smoking and tobacco companies, but you know, the same playbook has been used by many of the um, manufacturers of ultra processed foods. You know, in terms of how to market that to people. Um, in fact, I was reading recently about how with the opioid em- epidemic in the U.S., we, you know, we've had a, a really big problem with overuse of opioid or narcotic pain relievers. Um, same playbook. The, they found that you know many of these pharmaceutical companies they had campaigns to minimize the negative perception or side effects of opioids, uh, you know, and try to target vulnerable populations, you know, veterans, uh, young people, children, and um, and really influence prescribers uh, and physicians that way. So unfortunately, the same playbook is being used is used over and over again by you know so many of these different um, groups. So that makes it so hard for the average person to to navigate. For sure. And it's interesting because you speak about the world of health and it does seem to be so murred and foggy and confusing. And you'll speak to one expert and they say, hey, you have to be carnivore. And then you speak to another expert and they say, no, you have to be vegan. And then, uh, I mean, what you're saying makes the most practical sense to me. Hey, have have a bit of variety. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. uh, the Blue Zones was a a really great job for so many people without a, a degree in science for looking at, hey, what are the oldest, healthiest populations in the world doing did did you see that film or, or yes. read that book by any chance yeah 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 it was it was really interesting to me that uh, nothing that they were doing was that surprising there was no carnivores mm-hmm. none of them, there was really any vegans right. it was a lot of people doing a lot of the things that you're speaking about and also including um and i, I know with epidemiological studies there's so many factors that could change the outcome but it was really mm-hmm. interesting to me to hear about the impact that faith had on uh, a certain community groups mm-hmm. as well some of them uh, said that this was a, a really important part of the health aspect. I don't know exactly hmm. how that's measured, but it seems that regardless of whether you're speaking about religion or some form of spirituality, yes. that connection with something higher than yourself seems to be a really important part of, of the health journey as well, or at least the, mm-hmm. the meaning part of your life, I guess you could say. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, uh, um, <clears throat> you know, not only connecting to um, some type of purpose or meaning in, in life, uh, I think that's important, but also social connection, you know, making sure you're, you're in a community, you're not isolated, you're not dealing with loneliness. Uh, that's been shown to be a huge negative factor for health. So also an epidemic worldwide in terms of dealing with loneliness and isolation, but that as well, I, I believe is, is critical. For sure. I, I went a little bit off um, the, the point that we were talking about there, but to, to rewind to one of the subjects we were speaking about in terms of just big companies' yep. ability to be able to campaign or market the health benefits of their food, mm-hmm. even in some instances where it's not really there, I find this a really frustrating and, mm-hmm. and kind of um, disheartening factor around the health conversation. And I think that's what triggered that last little point was 
the the confusion that is there due to the the marketing budget that some of these mm-hmm. companies have is really incredible. Like I can't help but think that like the uh, the big meat world is celebrating this uptake of you know World Carnivore Month and mm. the health benefits of meat. It seems to be something that would really serve the interest of that. And I mean, with the own business, I've got a running business and I know the challenge of, um, you know, trying to be uh, mm. honest with the feedback you're yes. giving, if you know it's going to cost you some money. I had a company reach out to me a while ago asking if they would, if I would uh, be an ambassador for one of their sleep products. Mm-hmm. And it was an American one, FDA approved. And I mean, I, I, I took some capsules and I tried to do it and they were offering a nice pay packet and I really wanted to do mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the fact was, I was I'm a really good sleeper as it is. Mm-hmm. And I took it and I was like, I, I can't notice that much of a benefit, but, mm. but I could sense, and it, it took my discipline and maybe some of the discipline of my wife to go, hey, come mm. on, if you're not being completely honest, but you can see how mm. companies fall into the trap of going, Hey, this is, this is going to make us a lot of money. Sure. Yes. We can find the silver lining, uh, mm-hmm. finance, like for at least financial reasons. So, I mean, that psychology of that's a, a really interesting point. Hey, Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, with nutrition, um, people don't often realize the impact that uh, industry and these big companies have on nutrition guidelines. You know, uh, many of these uh, large processed food manufacturers uh, pay scientists to, you know, have certain opinions. And many of these scientists are forming these food guidelines. And that's how you get messages out in the media that, you know, Processed foods can be a part of a healthy diet. They're not necessarily harmful as long as you're watching your overall calories, you know, on and on. So um, unfortunately, yeah, it really clouds the message because uh, you you hear these real experts uh, who are have credentials, they're well qualified, and they're saying, you know, processed foods are not that bad for you, soda is not that bad for you, and so forth. So it, it's really hard for the average person. Yeah, it's so interesting. In terms of... Um... The other factors, another one, I know I'm jumping around a little bit here, but there's so many interesting factors yes. on the subject. I mean, a podcast like this could go for 10 hours and we'd still have weeks right, <laughs> to right. discuss other options, as I'm sure you know better than anyone else. But you mentioned before about the lifestyle factors which are leading mm. to stress. So whether that's, I mean, lack of sleep or difficult family, <coughs> uh, friendship mm. situations, work situations. But I also heard you mention things like um, guided visualization, meditation, maybe prayer would be Mm -hmm. in that same element. I'm not sure what your actual protocol or your own journey is, but I'd be interested to hear a little more about what it is that you're doing to to look after that part of your own life that uh, those listening might find some value in. Oh, yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. Well, I think um, one thing is is clear is there are many different ways to manage stress effectively uh, for health benefit. Um, and so people have to realize that it has to be something that you enjoy. So whether it be going out in nature, you know, being out in um, being out in the sun, or a practice like uh, prayer, meditation, visualization, hypnosis, um, even um, cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, working yeah. with a, a psychotherapist, uh, counseling can be really, really helpful. So I think that the main thing is, you know, finding something that you enjoy that you can do regularly. Uh, I'm a big fan of meditation, and there's more and more research about the brain effects of meditation, how it helps uh, literally change the structure of your brain, you know, grows uh, new brain cells in the, both gray matter and the white matter, uh, and the hippocampus gets larger in uh, those who meditate regularly. And that's the part of the brain that regulates stress, so that's why you get more resilient. Um, 
And also meditation has been shown to reverse the uh, or prevent the normal age-related atrophy of brain cells. So uh, what happens on, on typical aging is that the brain shrinks. You know, you lose cells every, every year. But in those who meditate, that effect is um, not seen. So it's kind of a protective effect on the brain for, for against the negative effects of aging. So um, I'm a big fan of that, but I think, you know, there are many paths to the mountaintop and people have to just see what works for them. So interesting. Do, do you know much about what's going on in the de decrease in the brain size as we age? Is that like a, a combination of factors? Like you're not as invested in learning or is that simply an age-related? I think that's such an yeah. interesting concept. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. I, mm -hmm. I, I look at so many of the elderly people in my own life and mm. their faculties aren't there in the way that they were 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, you can see it playing out and you put it down to old age, mm -hmm. but I really think about the actual practical side of what's going on there. I'm not really thinking about the decrease in the size of their brain or the effectiveness yes. of their brain function when I, when I think about that or notice it at least. Yeah, I think it's um, both factors, you know, one factor being less uh, engagement of the brain, you know, you're um, retiring from work, you're not challenging yourself intellectually as much as you used to. And that is why, you know, brain exercises and, you know, or learning a new language or learning an instrument in retirement has been shown to really be good for the brain. Um, and the other piece of it is just normal age-related, uh, you know, decline and death of uh, brain cells, just like, you know, throughout the rest of the body. So there is a, a slow, normal uh, loss of brain um, size, but, you know, meditation is one of the great ways to actually prevent that. So I think, uh, you know, the, <clears throat> that's why meditation plus uh, keeping the brain really active, you know, that combination is so powerful. Sure. And I know there's so many uh, ways that people meditate, but when you're uh, referring to the way you meditate, mm -hmm. are you simply referring to a focus on your breath and sort of trying to, uh, I guess, for lack of a better expression, disconnect from the emotional highs and lows that comes with the thought? Uh, yes. Yeah, that's one of the ways uh, that I practice it. And, uh, you know, in my book, I describe like five common techniques for meditation. Uh, there's different practices. Um, there's uh, breathing based practices. And then there's also more um, practices focusing on emotional or cognitive components. So there are many different ways, just like with other things to, to meditate. And uh, main thing is, uh, you know, I tell people always that um, the point of meditation isn't to still your thoughts and because so many people tell me, oh, I'm bad at meditation or I can't do it because I can't keep my mind still. And, you know, I, I tell them, well, that that's not being bad at meditation. That is understanding the nature of the mind because the nature of the mind is to produce thoughts. And, you know, the goal is not to completely still them, but just to be aware and then come back to whatever you're focusing on, breathing or part of the body or whatever it may be. So I think people sometimes um, you have to ask them what is their definition of meditation so that they don't feel they're like a failure and can't do it because they, they, they feel like they're not getting any benefit, but that's not true at all. That is a really good point. I noticed that with nearly everyone, including myself, when I first started meditation, that was my right. main objection. Yeah. Uh, and that's something actually that I've probably let the ball drop a little bit on. I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old boy at the moment and mm -hmm. i mean naturally since i've been trying to be a bit more of a hands-on oh, yeah. dad sure, the, sure. the availability of time in my days are a lot less than what it was three years ago and yeah. and i think if i'm honest there's been certain things that i've probably dropped the ball on and meditation is definitely mm. one of those but for mm -hmm. about five or six years i was practicing daily and for the reasons that oh. you've explained I, I really noticed there was um a direct correlation between just mm. how i handled 
stressful events in my day mm-hmm. and the regularity of, of meditation. Yes. And perhaps I was actually thinking about this. I was, I was out running this morning and I'm like, mm. oh, gee, I, I feel like there's a real trigger in me at the moment where I'm riding the, uh, the roller coaster of the emotional highs mm. and lows. Mm-hmm. And perhaps it's just a little bit of atrophy in the, um, you know, the, the brain that I was developing through meditation. So I need to take an asterisk or, or put an asterisk next to that and make sure I, I get back on. It's, mm-hmm. it's also interesting, um, the, the fact that you mentioned that there's a variety of ways to, to meditate. And I know, mm-hmm. as you said, you've, you've spoken about this in your book, but one thing that I notice in myself and so many people is this idea of analysis paralysis. Mm-hmm. There's so many yep. great tools and strategies that you can apply, um, you know, whether it's in regard to your food or your mindset or mm-hmm. exercise or family or to literally insert any part of your life. And there's, mm-hmm. there's a million ways that people recommend you can do different things. But so often the, the benefit comes in just deciding to choose one yes. and actually creating a practice around that. Did, did you have any trouble getting to a point of going, okay, well, this is the actual meditation style for me? Or if it wasn't meditation, perhaps there's another area of your life around diet or exercise mm-hmm. that you've experienced what it is that I'm trying to explain? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> no, absolutely. I think that's one of the challenges with our modern world is just the overwhelming abundance of choices. Um, and I, you know, I have many patients struggling, um, struggling with that as well. Um, I think that, um, yeah, mostly what I see is really uh, in the area of diet, just because we we have so many choices. Um, we have so many uh, differing voices that we're exposed to, you know, in the science, uh, in, in the media. Um, and so my patients are often just very confused. They don't know where to start. And therefore, they just throw their hands up and, you know, eat whatever they, they feel like. And so, uh, yeah, I think that is a very uh, important issue in, in multiple areas. Yeah. So outside of sleep, Outside of the various forms of meditation, I find exercise really beneficial in terms of a mental mm-hmm. recovery. For me, it's oh, a, yeah. my wife laughs at me because I often a lot of people hate the idea of having to go out and exercise. But for me, it's just a, if I don't exercise, I'm not as happy. I don't feel as good. Mm-hmm. Like starting, as I mentioned, starting the day today with a run, mm-hmm. I finish up and it's like my, my cells come alive and, and mentally I'm, I'm more ready for the day. Yeah. But in terms of other ways that um, rest can be developed. Have you got any recommendations? Because I'm not sure, I can't remember the exact numbers or, or dates, but essentially, and uh, as I said, don't fact check me here, but mm-hmm. I want to say like the 30s or 40s, the average American was sleeping eight and a half hours a night. And in 2017, I think it was, the average American sleeping six and a half hours a night. And I can see mm. there'd be some pretty yes. obvious reasons, um, you know, access to the internet and movies and Netflix and whatever else might be yep. going on. Just mm. the availability of light throughout all of our houses mm. um, it would obviously be a really big factor in that. But it seemed mind-blowing that in, you know, 70 or 80 years, we could lose on average two hours of sleep a night. And you think about the health impacts of that can't be great in terms of how it is that we're feeling perhaps mm. uh, you know laying the foundation for you know why so many of our health elements of, of life are crumbling for, for many people mm-hmm. obviously what else do you recommend or is there anything else that's a, a must have as a part of your life uh, your daily life in terms of mental physical recovery outside of the obvious that we've just spoken about Oh, um, yes. So I think for me, I share your view on exercise, because I I feel like the the same way, you know, it really works as an antidepressant for me. And uh, I feel that immediate, you know, upliftment of mood. And, uh, and even though that was more recent in the past few years, you know, I was not always very physically active. But once I uh, became more active, I really 
noticed the benefit and then I start to miss it if I go a day without, you know, moving and, and being active. So I totally relate to you on, on that one. Um, and I, I think the, the topic of sleep is definitely um, one thing as well for me that was very important because, uh, you know, in our medical training, we're basically uh, skipping sleep for, you know, every a few days every week and uh, uh, being on call, staying in the hospital and doing that for years. Um, and uh, um, and then coming out of that, it's quite hard to get into a, a regular routine and, you know, get uh, prioritized sleep. And um, yeah, so I, that was a struggle for me and, and took many years uh, to get into the, you know, healthy pattern. And then now with the research on the benefits of sleep, I think it's amazing because uh, I often tell people, you know, if there's the single most powerful thing you can do for your health is get, getting an adequate night's sleep every night. And uh, for many people, you know, it's in that um, seven or eight hour range uh, because uh, there are some people who thrive on six hours of sleep, but, um, you know, not the, not the average person. And uh, um, it varies in terms of what the exact requirement is for hours of sleep. But I always tell my patients that, you know, if you wake up in the morning and you don't feel fresh and well rested, that means that you probably did not get enough sleep and, uh, um, you know, use that simple guideline. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, um, I sometimes also recommend people use sleep trackers, the, you know, to, mm. to get some more data about their, their sleep. Um, although I think there's a, uh, caveat there. Sometimes people with this too much data, you know, then they, they start getting, uh, that has a negative effect because then they're anxious because their sleep tracker told them they slept poorly, even when they slept well. And so you have to be careful there. Yeah. I had a mate come and stay with me in London a few years ago when I was living there and he slept on the, the floor of my little apartment. He woke up one morning and I don't know what it was he was tracking it with, but he was uh, had this big smile on his face. So I was like, what are you so happy about? He goes, I just got a sleep PR. Okay, mm -hmm. what's, a, what's a sleep PR? And he was just walking me through some of the numbers mm. uh, that he got with this particular sleep. And he was just pumped because the mm. data suggested he got his best uh, his best score, essentially, which I thought was, you oh. know, a sign of the times that we're in with the availability of technology. But yeah, I, I really enjoy mm. that. Like, I like the idea of actually being able to track it. I know that that mm. um, that data, as you say, can can be a little overwhelming for some people. Um yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, have you heard much about or played much with the Aura Ring? Oh yeah, um, I haven't uh, had that personally, but um, yeah, I've heard a lot of good things about using that to to track different metrics. Yeah, I haven't I haven't had it either, but I'm always interested to know how it is, uh, and this might be a subject for a, another guest. But I don't know how it is that these particular devices are, are tracking the effectiveness of the sleep? Has it got to do with heart rate or movement or what are they actually um, looking for to monitor how effective I think, that is? I think both, both. Yeah. They look at your heart rate and heart rate variability. They look at uh, skin temperature. They look at movement, um, you know, combination of, of those things. Yeah. What kind of exercise are you doing? What triggered your, your own exercise routine? You said just a few years ago oh, was yeah. when it kickstarted. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, just, um, I think it was one of those new year's resolutions that then just, uh, stuck with me. And, um, yeah, I, I really got into, uh, resistance training, like incorporating weight training and, uh, which I had not done for many years and, and then started adding in some cardio as well. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, so basically pretty simple, but, um, that combination seemed to really work for me. Sure. And you're doing one version of that throughout each day of the week? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to. awesome. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, you mentioned earlier about the artificial sweeteners, um, mm -hmm. some of the emulsifiers that, that's in so many 
parts of our food. The, the one area of my own lifestyle where I, I can see these is I, I take sodium tablets from time to time mm-hmm. um, after a long run. Like if I've sweat fairly significantly yep. over the course of a 70 or 80 minute run, I might come home, have a sodium tablet mm. and um, they're, they're relatively sweet. It says it's sugar free, but you look at the ingredients and there's there's sweeteners and emulsifiers and the, the bad things that you say, you know, mm. you know, you probably should do your best to avoid. For, from an Ayurvedic perspective, is is there any effective way outside of just a, you know like a salt water mm-hmm. that could be good for athletes who are out there doing fairly intense physical activity who are trying to replace the the salts and things that they're losing when they're out there running or you know cycling swimming whatever it else is they're doing oh um well i'm a big fan of coconut water you know because of the potassium um, magnesium other minerals um uh, and for sodium yeah i think just plain old sea salt in a bottle of water when is a good way you know it's uh, it's pretty much um it's pretty much equivalent but yeah for the other minerals i really like coconut water for sure I mean, we're, we're starting to get to the tail end of the, the conversation, but I, I, I thought maybe um, as a way to hand it over, I've obviously got the book linked in the description to this episode for anyone who'd like to dig deep and actually find out more about the book, learn more about the subjects that we're talking about. Obviously, we're only just scratching the surface, but mm. um, in terms of uh, you know leaving the audience with any particular message or a point of encouragement, is there anything that we haven't spoken about that you think the audience could consider in terms of not just autoimmune health, but just general health and, mm-hmm. um, you know, bodily function? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm trying to um, raise awareness about the negative effects of sitting and prolonged sitting because, uh, um, you know, that's something we all do, especially with the pandemic, more people working from home. Um, and uh, there's more and more research about the really harmful effects of prolonged sitting, uh, not just on, you know, metabolism, body weight and so forth, but even on inflammation because, you uh, those who sit for prolonged periods were found to have higher blood markers of inflammation. Um, and, uh, um, and then also sitting, it does uh, actually, um, so if you exercise every day and you're, you know, you're very physically active, but you also have, you sit for eight hours a day, you're actually, you actually don't get the benefits of the exercise because the, the it's like uh, the prolonged sitting cancels out the benefits of exercise in, in many areas. So, um, so I tell people to do both, you know, be active, but then also try not to sit, you know, use a standing desk, uh, try to get your 10,000 steps, try to, you know, mix it up, walking, standing, sitting, um, and so forth. So I think we should really give attention to the topic of sitting because uh that is uh, you know not not just bad for your posture and and all that but really for inflammation and metabolism and longevity probably sure so in terms of uh, on a day-to-day basis when you're at the office or wherever it is that you're doing your work how are you varying between the the different structures of you know getting your work done you've just mentioned between standing sitting or something in between exactly yeah i mean i pretty much i just have an adjustable workstation so i stand for most of the day and then you know once in a while i'll sit but uh just i yeah i just try to spend most of the day standing in the office oh okay so that's foundational uh, posture for you is is standing up that's funny. I've got you on a, uh, uh, right now I've got the laptop set up on a, what is an adjustable desk as well. So oh, I'm going to have to uh, yes, <laughs> keep yes. that going. But Dr. Akil, man, I, I really appreciate you making the time to come on. I was really looking forward to this conversation. Um, I've heard so much uh, about what you've had to say. I've been really inspired by you. So hmm. um, it means a lot that you come on here and, you know, spend some time answering questions and just uh, going back and forth with me. So thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure, Tyson. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me.